Good afternoon. It is a great pleasure to welcome you all to this year's Holberg debate. In particular, I would like to extend a warm welcome to the excellent speakers on the very interesting program this afternoon, John Pilger and Jonathan Haywood, who are with us here in the University Aula, and Julian Assange, who will be with us on video link. The Holberg debate is organized by the Holberg Prize, this year in collaboration with the Fritur Foundation and Norwegian Penn, and with support from the University of Bergen and the Bergesen Foundation. As chair of the board of the Holberg Prize, I would like to express our great gratitude to our co-organizers and sponsors. The board of the Holberg Prize is appointed by the University of Bergen, which administers the prize on behalf of the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research. The Holberg Prize is regarded as the equivalent of the Nobel Prize in fields where there are no Nobel Prizes, in arts and humanities, social science, law and theology. Since 2004, the prize is awarded annually to scholars who have made outstanding contributions in these fields. More generally, the purpose of the Holberg Prize is to raise the status of arts and humanities, social science, law and theology, and to increase society's awareness of the importance of research in these fields. The Holberg debate intends to follow up this purpose by focusing on academic and public discussion of issues which are both challenging for society and important in research within the fields of the Holberg Prize. This year's topic is propaganda, facts, and fake news. This topic in itself is not at all new, although it has received a lot of new attention recently. However, the new communication technology represents a new context for discussion of today's topic. Internet and new social media make it easier to receive, send, share, and respond to large amounts of information. But this also means that it becomes more difficult to distinguish between true and false information, between real and fake news, and between facts and propaganda. This creates a number of new challenges for society and an increasing need for insights and critical perspectives from social science and humanities. The Holberg Prize and the Holberg Debate are named after Ludwig Holberg, who was born in Bergen in 1684 and became professor at the University of Copenhagen in several of the fields covered by the Holberg Prize. He traveled extensively in Europe and played an important part in bringing the Enlightenment to the Nordic countries. He is also well known as a playwright, in particular for his comedies and satirical works on highly relevant social issues. Tomorrow, on the 3rd of December, it is 333 years since he was born. And I'm sure you'll agree that the Holberg debate is a very meaningful way of celebrating Ludwig Holberg's birthday. Now, giving the floor to the academic director of the Holberg Prize, Professor Ellen Mortensen, I will again welcome all of you to this year's Holberg debate. Thank you. Thank you, Sigmund. 
let me start by once more welcoming, welcoming the audience and our panelists to this great event. We are pleased that so many of you have found the way to the University Aula today. This year's Hobart debate is dedicated to the theme propaganda, facts, and fake news. Today, manipulation of information, be it through propaganda, fake news, bias, or distorted facts, has vast implications for people trying to make sense of the world. While politicians and media actors mutually accuse one another of undermining the truth and stirring up the public's emotions with questionable assertions, the actual interests that lie behind the narratives are often obscured and it is oftentimes unclear whether or not the news are based on accurate facts. To discuss the presence of propaganda in news and social media, we have invited a panel of three prominent media personalities, Julian Assange, John Pilger, and Jonathan Haywood. But before I introduce the panelists more in detail, let me run through some practical details concerning the event. The program is divided into two sessions without a break between the two. In the first hour, Julian Assange will join us via video link from Ecuador's embassy in London. During this part of the program, there will be a 20-minute keynote speech by Assange, immediately followed by a 15-minute interview of Assange by Ule Sanmo from the Holberg Secretariat. After the interview, we will open up for a 25-minute question and answer session, where the two other panelists and people from the audience will have the opportunity to ask questions directly to Julian Assange. Upon completion of the Assange session, we will start by giving the floor to our two other panelists, Jonathan Haywood and John Pilger, respectively, who will speak on the theme of propaganda, facts, and fake news for about 25 minutes each. Their talk will be followed by the last Q&A session where the audience may pose questions directly to the two panelists. We operate within a strict timeline. We ask, therefore, we ask everyone, therefore, to adhere to the announced schedule and to please observe the following instructions. All questions posed must relate to the overall topic of the event. Irrelevant questions will be ignored and we will move on to the next question. Questions should be short and clearly formulated. We ask those who wish to question or to pose questions to Assange during the first Q&A session to line up on the left side of the Ola, right below the podium here. People can start lining up during the interview with Assange. <clears throat> For the second session, the same procedure will be followed. People who wish to ask questions to the two panelists should start lining up in front of the podium during the last part of Pilger's speech. We will make uh, a sign when it is appropriate for people to line up. To allow for the maximum amount of questions, we ask people to please observe these guidelines. Now, at last, let me introduce the three panelists. We are extremely pleased that our panelists have accepted the invitation to join us to speak about these pressing issues. John Pilger 
is an Australian journalist, author, and documentary filmmaker. Pilger has covered military, political, and cultural conflicts around the world for more than five decades. And his criticism of American, Australian, and British foreign policy is strongly reflected in his documentaries and writings. Pilger has won numerous awards and is one of the only two people to win British journalism's highest award twice. Jonathan Haywood is the CIO and founder of Impress, the only press regulator to be recognized as independent and effective under the Royal Charter in the United Kingdom. He has previously worked as a journalist and human rights campaigner, and he's a former director of English Pen. Haywood has written on free speech and regulation for numerous publications. And Julian Assange is an award-winning journalist and the founder and editor-in-chief of WikiLeaks. He's also a programmer, cryptographer, author, and activist. Founded in 2006, WikiLeaks has published millions of leaked documents, including logs that relate to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and election campaign-related emails from the Democratic National Committee and from Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, John Podesta. <clears throat> Good afternoon, Julian Assange. Should we get him on? Good afternoon, Julian Assange. Are you there? Good afternoon. Can you hear me? I, I can hear you. Wonderful. We can hear you too. We are excited to be connected with you at the embassy. And uh, we ask you to move on right away to your keynote address. But I would like you to ask to explore the central themes of today's debate. Are we currently seeing a global war of information that is escalating, both openly and covertly, far beyond what many of us were, are aware of? And to what extent does the presence of propaganda and manipulated information in news and social media threaten our democracy and our ability to make informed decisions? Well, th thank you. Uh, for that, and I'm very pleased to be at uh, this esteemed uh, Norwegian event. Um, uh, I, I understand John Pilger is there. John, John is uh, uh, a very great uh, friend of mine, and I've grown to respect him a great deal over the years. Uh, okay, so I hope you, you treat him very well. Um, well, I have, of course, seen the uh, debate about fake news. And when this term came up, uh, perhaps a year ago, uh, pop populated, uh, popularized by the, initially by the US mainstream media, uh, I thought to myself, uh, you know what, Th this uh, term, fake news, is going to turn around uh, 180 degrees. Uh, within a few hours uh, and be used to criticize the um, oligarch 
controlled press in the United States and elsewhere. And that's exactly what happened. So I was, I was in fact, rather pleased with this term. Uh, I don't want to suggest that there isn't some newness to the phenomenon. Uh, that's not correct. There are some new things occurring. Uh, in particular, what is where we're moving into in relation to AI uh, really is a, a potential change uh, that human beings can have great difficulty encompassing. Essen essentially, if you're in a if we're in a competition, as human beings have been for many years, between liars and lie detect people who detect lies. Uh, Artificial intelligence means that uh, the lies can be automated and pumped out on mass. Uh, that's not something that is happening yet uh, to a degree where I think we need to seriously worry about it, but, but, it, but it will. Okay, but now let's put some things into perspective. Um, Thomas Jefferson in 1807, uh, this is... Uh, a couple of years after he had had the uh, US presidency, keeping in mind that the US uh, presidency back then was a much smaller affair. Uh, there was no standing army of, <coughs> of uh, tens or hundreds of thousands of people, and the presidential role was um, uh, much more of a figurehead role. But uh, Jefferson, who's a, perhaps the uh, smartest of the founding fathers of the United States, <clears throat> put it like this. Nothing can now be believed, <clears throat> nothing can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper. Truth itself becomes suspicious by being put into that polluted vehicle. Uh, that's his view from that time and he goes on to jokingly uh, assert that, well, perhaps a new newspaper should be launched with different sections, uh, the first section uh, being truths uh, and the last section being uh, absolute falsehoods uh, and in the middle various types of claims. And the, the first section would be uh, almost non-existent uh, and the last section quite large, and the middle padding out the rest. So it, it's been that way for a very, very long time. And uh, to a degree, uh, while most people can perceive that the media is not trustworthy, and if, and if you look at that on various opinion polls, you will see that that is a, quite a common perception amongst people, that the media is not trustworthy. Uh, there is a narrative uh, that it is. And, well, why is that? Because I think the media is, in, in general terms, uh, one of the most destructive forces uh, that has ever existed. Uh, it, it has led to nearly every war that we've had, uh, certainly the wars by uh, democracies, uh, all the big wars that, that you can name, at least in the post-World War II period, and to a degree, uh, even in World War II, uh, were built up, their populations were mobilized on the back of lies from the Gulf of Tonkin incident <clears throat> uh, to the Iraq war, to the Gulf war. Uh, so the, the average 
death count per journalist, I did a, a calculation uh, for US journalists recently, is something like 130 uh, kills per journalist as a result uh, of them not treating their function seriously, which is to provide, well, their supposed or claimed societal function seriously, which is to provide the truth, uh, and instead <coughs> spreading propaganda and lies uh, of the major power establishments in the countries that they're in. So I want to, yeah, first of all, uh, ground this debate about fake news <clears throat> with the reality that the news has always been fake. It has always been something that has been used to manipulate uh, human populations en masse <clears throat> into absolutely disastrous outcomes in order for proprietors of news organizations to, yes, make profits by peddling salacious stories, but much more significantly to keep their integration with existing establishments in those countries and at a social level for each journalist and editor to ingratiate themselves socially with the very establishments they are meant to be policing. Um, now, <clears throat> the renewed uh, talk about fake news, well, it's, it's been you know, taken up uh, by Donald Trump in his critiques of, of CNN, for example. Okay, now, is it true that uh, those responses by Donald Trump are uh, motivated by a, <clears throat> a president in power trying to distract from critique of the press? Absolutely, of course that's the motivation. Uh, but is he nonetheless, in general terms, correct? Yes, in general terms, uh, he is correct. Uh, CNN, uh, uh, I don't mean to pick on it unnecessarily, it's, it's certainly not the, the only one. All the big establishment media in the United States, uh, Fox News, CNN, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, are filled every day uh, with very serious and misleading fake news. Mm. Okay. Um, now, uh, <clears throat> while why people, why is the term being popularized other than uh, politicians and other people who are criticized in the media using it, using it to rebuff that criticism, whether that criticism is true or as it very often is false? Uh, well, the US election, principally last year, saw an outbreak of uncontrolled popularism. Um, now, that popularism was harnessed by, was effectively uh, uh, neo-fascistic cultural sentiments. That's true. Uh, it was harnessed in various ways by those groups. But nonetheless, it is a democratic outburst that occurred principally because of the increased ease with which uh, human beings can share information with each other, uh, social media, small publishers, etc., And that, of course, has led to cultural change. Uh, it's led to cultural change, um, 
not simply because of underpinning reasons, which uh, many people on the left talk about, such as the um, decline in, in US real wages from 1978, uh, or by the concerns that people on the right talk about, for example, uh, increased uh, immigration, but rather because the establishment press is integrated with the existing order of things and is used to, uh, uh, has been used to create that order and to maintain it. Uh, now, whether you see uh, a decrease in the existing order as a positive or a negative uh, depends on where, where you think that is going uh, and, where, and whether you stand to lose or gain in the process of that change. But uh, obvious, let's do a little thought experiment. Uh, imagine that uh, <clears throat> um, do, we, do we accept that the press has a serious influence on society and the ideas that are passed around? Some ideas are pushed more than others, other ideas are suppressed, other ideas are introduced through the press. Uh, we all know that the press has been used to mobilize uh, nations for illegal wars, for example. Okay, I, I say that in uh, democracy, especially, uh, the press is one of the principal uh, controlling functions of the existing uh, establishment, the existing order of things. Uh, so when that control structure can be worked around, social media, uh, new publishers starting up with very little capital uh, because of the internet, is that going to change the existing order of things? Obviously, if, you, if, your claim, if your claim was that the press is intimately part of the existing order of things, and there's a new press, which is not part of the existing order of things, then obviously the order, uh, the cultural order, uh, and to some degree, the, uh, clearly the, the relative balance of who has power and who does not, uh, is going to change. So this has uh, terribly frightened uh, existing establishments, and those existing establishments are, of course, integrated with the, with the establishment press by definition. So why we see such talk in the establishment press about the, uh, the, about the fear of fake news is not simply because it's, it's another thing to be salacious about, not simply because um, uh, there is some, to, su to some degree uh, a new phenomenon, it's because the uh, change in the informational control system of which the existing establishment press was a major component uh, leads to a decrease in power of the, of the existing establishment and a decrease in power of the existing establishment press. So all those little publishers, social media, et cetera, are uh, in, uh, both in some sense uh, direct rivals for establishment press power uh, and they and they are in, a, <clears throat> are in addition something that causes the, the 
uh, general uh, establishment in many countries <coughs> uh, to feel that it is also losing its grip uh, to uh, populist forces uh, which well up uh, in the yeah, to, to populist forces that well up in the gap. Let me start again. Uh, so the existing establishments, uh, including, the, including uh, of course, the press, which is integrated with them, see this uncontrolled phenomenon as a uh, direct uh, threat to their power and also to the existing order, which creates some you know, creates fear uh, in themselves and also directly uh, for the press itself. So the press talks about it a lot and, try, and tries to uh, push forwards for there to be greater controls um, in the spreading of information. And this, uh, this has then led to a very uh, serious situation, extremely serious situation, uh, where pressure has been applied to Facebook, Google, these giant new digital superstates, these giant intermediaries, uh, to regain control of the informational flow system uh, of the West, broadly speaking, to prevent uh, outbursts of popularism and unexpected outcomes of which uh, the election of Donald Trump, or rather the failure to elect Hillary Clinton, uh, is the uh, most obvious example. And that was put in concrete terms in France um, uh, in the Macron election. So feeling the, uh, the heat of criticism, uh, Facebook and Google uh, decided to explicitly intervene uh, in the French election. That is to say explicitly uh, that they were setting up a mutual task force uh, to prevent the spreading of what they called uh, fake news during the French election. Now, is it true that fake news uh, was spread during the fr French election? Of course, uh, fake news is, is spread in the mainstream press uh, and small press and social media in every election. Um, but uh, the, the question of who determines uh, who determines what is fake news and what is not, uh, of course, is decided by the um, forces that come together to make the claim and to make the censorship system uh, involved. And of course, in this case, uh, those forces wanted to see uh, Emmanuel Macron elected and not uh, Marianne Le Pen. Uh, now, of course, there are good reasons to be concerned about both of these candidates, but nonetheless, this was an overt intervention by Google and Facebook, American Silicon Valley companies into the French election with the construction of a censorship system, which they said uh, was there in order to stop, to stop uh, what they assessed to be or claimed to be uh, fake news. Okay. Um, perhaps we'll go on to a question. I can, of course, talk, uh, I'd, I'd like to talk as we go ahead about uh, where this is going in terms of artificial intelligence. And of course I can talk 
in practical in practical terms about uh, the roles of various spy agencies and so on. But uh, as I said, I, the att attempts to influence influence the public have always been there for a very very long time. There are some new elements, but I don't think that they're significant. What I do think is very significant is the the the, de the de debate uh, by existing establishment press to to say that certain forms of information spread need to be stopped, and that is then leading to um, a new norm of automated uh, censorship by giant Silicon Valley companies uh, of the information that we communicate with each other. That's, that's very serious. Thank you very much, Julian. Now, uh, we move on to the next point on our program, namely the interview with Julian Assange. Those of you in the audience who want to address Assange should line up here in front of the podium during the interview. I call on the Holberg Prize communications officer, Ulla Sanmu, to conduct the interview. And Ulla, I yield the floor to you. <coughs> thank you, Alan. And um, Julian, thank you so much for being with us. I'd like to cover a few topics over the next 15 or so minutes, um, starting with perhaps the most important and deadly aspect of propaganda, that is, its application in issues of war and peace. Using the Syrian case as an example, journalist Patrick Cockburn wrote earlier this year that fabricated news and one-sided reporting have taken over the news agenda to a degree probably not seen since the First World War. Do you agree, and do you currently see any winners in the global propaganda war? Um, thank you. I mean, on, on the Syrian case, it's very, it's very clear uh, that, of course, all sides have engaged in serious propaganda in that conflict. And, and of course, you can understand all the direct belligerents it, grasping every tool that they can. Uh, in order to preserve themselves or to win. Um, what's, I suppose, uh, noteworthy is that the, uh, the media power that exists uh, for Bashar al-Assad uh, and his, his allies uh, in that war, Iran and Russia, uh, is almost non, well, for, for Syria, it's essentially non-existent, for Iran, almost non-existent, and for Russia, pretty much, in, pretty insignificant compared to the, the media power of those uh, states like the United States, the UK, France, et cetera, uh, which, are which, have, which are or have been belligerents uh, in one way in that war. Um, I, I do think it's a, it's a it is a very interesting question whether the situation has objectively become worse. Uh, clearly, our ability to detect fake news by various establishments of different countries uh, and at a, at a popular level 
has tremendously increased because we're able to compare the outputs of different countries uh, and we were able to use the internet to collect underlying facts. Uh, and I mean, WikiLeaks is an example of that as a, a primary source repository, a pristine primary source repository, <coughs> which can be used to check, <coughs> which can be used to both make and also check various claims. Uh, I think it, in, in, in a, in a way, it has become worse. Uh, and that is the speed of information spread uh, is so fast that um, false claims, salacious false claims, uh, can spread around the world very, very quickly. Now, of course, they, they were always spread around the world, uh, but with, a, with a, a slightly lower cost, a slight, sorry, a slightly a higher cost to making false claims. Why do I say that? Well, the, the mm, debate over whether a claim is false, and, false or not uh, is rapidly dis, displaced by new information, which is, which is spreading everywhere. So it, there's, a, there's a kind of uh, churn or uh, chaos in the spread of information, which means that uh, debate, debate or accusations about whether uh, a newspaper produced fabricated coverage uh, is swept aside. But I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that those debates ever really happened properly. You look at the fabricated front page stories of the New York Times, which, which were then spread, uh, we must remember, not just by the New York Times, but nearly every single uh, European, Australian, Canadian, etc. paper on their front page uh, under the basis that they can always just pass the bucks in New York Times. They were never held accountable uh, for producing those fabricated front pages. All right. Um, I'll move on to a, a different topic. I'll try and cover a few uh, if we have time. Now, since we're talking about competing narratives, I have to ask you about the allegation that WikiLeaks conspired with the Russian government and the Trump campaign to hack the US election and publish emails from the Democratic National Committee and from Clinton's campaign manager, John Podesta. Now, you have consistently denied these allegations, but they're still presented as fact but by much of the established media. What's your take on this? It's, it's a very interesting form of fake news. So we have, <clears throat> on the one hand, we, we have WikiLeaks. We don't speak about our sources. In general, we have said our source is not a state in this case. Okay, uh, so that's where he, where he, that's our claim. Okay. Uh, there's been no presentation of evidence uh, that that claim is not a correct claim. What are the allegations, the formal allegations by US intelligence agencies? They obviously can't be trusted. Their, their business, CIA's business is uh, both stealing information and fabricating information. That, that's its business. It, its statements obviously can't be trusted. But what are its statements at their strongest? Uh, its statements at their strongest is that, uh, that there were hacks of the uh, DNC. Um, they provide no evidence. It's, it's their assessment. There are hacks of the DNC uh, that they believe was in somehow sponsored by Russia. And this information then flowed through some third parties uh, and came to us. That's, and we published it. 
That's the US intelligence allegation at its strongest. Uh, they say ex explicitly that there's not an allegation that WikiLeaks conspired with Russia or conspired with the Trump campaign. That's not the allegation from the US intelligence services. Uh, so, but are there allegations uh, that WikiLeaks did conspire with US intelligence services and the Trump campaign? Yes, every day. Those are made every day uh, in the US press, fabricating even what, even the strongest allegation of the US intelligence services. So here we have a, an interesting example where um, the statements of the CIA uh, are more moderate than the statements of the US mainstream press. Very interesting that, that you, you would think that this, no, the CIA would be making outlandish allegations uh, and then the press would be checking those allegations and somehow uh, uh, producing a less strident form of them. It's a, exactly the opposite. Hmm. All right. Now, um, I know WikiLeaks protects its sources. I have to ask you, you have denied that your source for the email leak was Russia or other state actors, but you have also gone further. And in an interview with Dutch TV, you raised the issue of murdered Democratic staffer Seth Rich and related it to how your sources take huge risks. Twice thereafter, WikiLeaks offered a reward for information on Rich's murder. Aren't you contributing to outrageous conspiracy theories and fake news by doing this? My, my concern is that uh, someone has, at that time, that a young Democratic staffer had been murdered in Washington, D.C., shot in the back uh, under suspicious circumstances. Uh, and, yeah, there's al allegations uh, exist that are serious that this was in, that Rich was in some way uh, connected to the sourcing of WikiLeaks material. Obviously, we're never going to confirm that or deny it, but it, but it is something that, that such an allegation about someone who's alleged to be one of our sources has to be very seriously checked. Uh, and it hasn't been very seriously checked by the media. In fact, there's a presentation that that's a conspiracy theory. Is it true that there are statements by Republicans that go uh, well beyond uh, what the publicly available evidence is in that case. That's absolutely true. It's been instrumentalized uh, for political purposes. Uh, but is it also true that that's a serious case of someone being murdered in Washington, D.C. and needs to be investigated, as do the allegations that uh, they had anything to do uh, with WikiLeaks sourcing? Hmm. Now. WikiLeaks sources are encouraged to use an anonymous Dropbox. If Russia had been your source, would it matter as long as the leaked information could be verified? It wouldn't matter to us. Uh, I think it's, there's an always important question uh, when you see a, a story appear in the press. Uh, what are the motivations behind that story appearing, both at the, at the press level and whatever the, the sourcing is. But that's a, <coughs> that's a separate story. It's okay for people to 
to investigate that. In, in fact, in some ways, I wish those types of things were investigated more. Uh, but it, it's not okay to use it as a distraction uh, from the content of the material. Uh, obviously, in most cases, the, the material uh, that is published, the leak material, must take precedence. Uh, and provided is true information, the public can rely on it. Uh, but machinations that occur to produce things in newspapers, yeah, they should be scrutinized, as should the, the nature of publishing organizations, who owns them, who controls them, etc. Mm. Now, you recently confirmed that WikiLeaks was approached by the firm Cambridge Analytica in the run-up to the US election last year. But you also stated that you told them, in your own words, to bugger off. Now, could you comment on what it was that Cambridge Analytica wanted from you? and more generally explain what it is that they do that has created such media interest? Well, this, this came out because of a, a leaked email uh, from uh, that time period of Cambridge Analytica. This is not my claim. Uh, a leaked email uh, appearing in, I think it was the, da the Daily Beast originally, uh, which has Chelsea Clinton on its board. It's a, it's a hostile paper in that sense. Uh, published an email showing that uh, Cambridge Analytica had attempted to approach us wondering what we were going to publish and could they get early access to it. And we had said no. Yeah. So, uh, but I'm interested in um, if you could explore a little bit what it is that Cambridge Analytica does uh, that seems to have... I see, I see. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's, it's quite... Interesting. I mean, you, you look at that Cambridge Analytica story. When we, when we first saw this story, we thought, this is great. This is independent documentary proof uh, that uh, we had nothing to do uh, with uh, sharing our publications or anything like that with the Trump campaign. Independent proof, an approach uh, by Cambridge Analytica and a rejection by us. Hmm. Uh, but, of, but of course, the rejection part in maybe five-sixths of the US press uh, is, is suppressed because it, it doesn't fit a, a certain uh, movement which is there for various reasons but ultimately different forces coming together uh, in, an, <coughs> in an attempt to install Mike Pence uh, as president. Okay, uh, Cambridge Analytica, uh, it's a UK firm, it's been going for about uh, 20 years, it's a, it's a type of marketing firm and it, and, it, and it claims some magic source which is to produce psychological profiles. Uh, and according to its statements, it does about one third of its work around the world in helping particular election uh, teams um, study which ads are best at influencing which voters based upon their personality profiles, et cetera. But that's only one third of its work. Uh, the other third is uh, been hired by the military um, and intelligence services to, it claims, uh, to create influence in, for example, Afghanistan, to, to influence people in that way. Uh, and the last third, uh, commercial influence, which I, I assume has to do with influencing people to support a company or to perhaps buy some product. It's, I'm, I'm rather 
unconvinced that they, that they have something special. Uh, why is that? Um, the commercial market for, for influencing people is very, very competitive and aggressive. Uh, so uh, product advertisers, the big marketing firms, are in a ferocious competition, uh, which is coupled together with the data collection power of organizations like Facebook and Google. So when you see a company engaged in uh, government contracts uh, and contracts with uh, political parties who don't like to talk about who their um, advertising partners are, that's a less competitive environment. It's not a good market. And, and when you have a, a, an opaque market, uh, you can't see who is doing, who is uh, proficient and who is not so proficient. So in, in general, when, when you see a company that has lots of government contracts, you understand that a lot of its resources are going into developing contacts within various governments, uh, rather than in refining uh, the most proficient style of product. This seems to be very essential to the topic of manipulation of information. I just want to remind the audience that if you uh, wish to ask Julian questions, feel free to line up uh, by the microphone here, and uh, I'll, I'll keep going for a, a few minutes. Um, so, uh, you touched on the topic of artificial intelligence. With reference to Facebook's and Twitter's involvement in the last presidential election in France, you said earlier this year Quote, imagine a daily mail run by essentially artificial intelligence. What does that look like when there's only the daily mail worldwide? That's what Facebook and Twitter will shift into, um, end quote. So could you explore that a little bit more? How big is this threat and what can be done about the risks associated with artificial intelligence in terms of manipulation of information and propaganda? It's, it's overwhelmingly the biggest threat to humanity. That's much, a much bigger threat than climate change. Uh, artificial intelligence means, uh, look, I've met some very savvy uh, pathological liars, psychopaths, very, very clever and hard to discern. Um, now, I'm sure all of you have met one or two of those types of people. Uh, just imagine their capacity to lie and deceive multiplied by a thousand. It's, a, it's not something that human beings can detect when it is at a certain level of proficiency. So um, human beings for the last uh, 15, 20 years, we have been documenting ourselves with billions of hours of video uploaded to YouTube with uh, all the thoughts and expressions that we have put on web pages and photo sharing, all the things that we have been searching for, and the photos taken by Google Maps as it drives around streets, uh, our current locations, which is communicated by smartphones, etc. A very, an extremely rich, uh, multivariable description of most of humanity, or at least that part which has any influence on the world. Very, very rich description. That <coughs> is being used 
to train artificial, intellig artificial intelligence systems. In fact, uh, Silicon Valley, those people who are interested in this type of thing, we've, had, we've kind of had a model uh, of how it works, what, what form of capitalism it is. It's surveillance capitalism. Its business is to create uh, so-called free services, bait, if you like, like your Google search engine, uh, or the free software that Google puts onto Android phones, which power 80% of the smartphones worldwide, uh, and use that bait to collect information from people, what you search for, for example, and then harvest uh, enormous uh, in some informational resource, in some models, it's a kind of resource extraction that comes in and scrapes off information from Norway, like a, in other countries, like a giant open cup mine, and collects it in Silicon Valley. And then creates profiles and sells them to advertisers. Yeah, so it's the informational middleman. Uh, that's all changing. That model is completely changing. As a result of surveillance capitalism, as a result of harnessing all that information from the world, uh, it's enough to then create and tr to train artificial intelligences. That's how, for example, uh, Google Translate has been able to come up with 65 language pairs now. And it's getting, it's getting quite good. It's, it's, it's kind of as good as an average uh, human translator in many cases, and one that can work 24 hours a day, et cetera. So inst instead of thinking about Google Translate, think about Google Liar. Instead of simply translating information, it's actually translating, translating some this giant repository uh, of how human beings behave into information that can be projected to human beings to cause them to act in particular ways. Google, Google liar. Now, already that's happening uh, in in a slightly in a you know in a more primitive form, which is to adjust the search rankings, for example. Now, as, as a result of the establishment fears uh, in the United States from this uh, unruly outburst of popularism that uh, led to Hillary Clinton not being elected, <coughs> um, Google decided to uh, invisibly re-rank uh, all the, or nearly all the critical press the establishment critical press. Uh, so both on the right and on the left. So um, yeah, from the World Socialist website, which went down by 60%, to WikiLeaks, which was pushed down by 30%, the Intercept pushed down 19%, uh, <coughs> Counterpunch pushed down about uh, 40%. So that has had invisible effect on the behavior of human beings, just, just based on what they're searching for. Sim similar for similarly for, uh, if you go to YouTube and you see some video that's recommended or not, nearly all foreign policy critiques that are uploaded to, to YouTube have been demonetized as a form of economic censorship. Those producers who were producing content that was critical of US foreign policy, they don't get any money anymore. No money uh, from, from Google. So it's, th these are, it's not, this is much more insidious than the case of 
someone producing a finely crafted news story that is fake, such as uh, uh, that WikiLeaks documents are fabricated. That was the number one fake news story in the United States, according to a study by Stanford. That, that fake news story was produced uh, not by some uh, site in Macedonia. That fake news story was produced by Newsweek, and who were subsequently sued, and they, re they re retracted the article. Um, so in instead of finely crafted uh, false messaging like that, think at a strategic level. We're talking about bulk influence uh, of human beings because, because these giant new digital superstates operate at scale. So you can have bulk influence. But unlike previous efforts at bulk influence, for example, BBC or a national broadcaster coming up with a lion and trying to culturally influence the entire population or politically influence the entire population, we're talking about bulk influence through mass individual targeting of individual psychological uh, and, and individual psychology, which has been collected by these uh, giant new AI organizations. So the, the end result <coughs> means that humanity will not be able to detect what is happening to humanity because the, because the uh, lies, if you like, uh, or the influence attempts uh, are so fast and so sophisticated. Hmm. So that then leaves us into a position where uh, humanity can't uh, see what is happening to it. And if it can't see what is happening to it, then it can't possibly change what is happening to it. It's a very, it's a, it's a kind of uh, a fake news apocalypse, if you think about it. Hmm. Before, that, before that point, or we can discuss what is occurring as we're doing now. We can discuss it, we can change it to a degree. Hmm. At some point, people cannot perceive what is occurring because, it's, because it is too sophisticated and too fast. And at that point, we have no ability to discuss it. It's, it's, it's kind of like a, um, a fake information cloud that can uh, cover uh, the actions of these digital superstates and their allies, uh, yeah. China, has them as well. It's really only China and the United States. A fake uh, cloud that cover them. Yeah, no? sorry. Wait, wait. It's, 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 sim it's similar to what occurred during the Cold War, where literal fake clouds uh, would be uh, placed over missile sites. Yeah. Literal fake clouds, so that satellite photography would not be able to observe what was going on. Here we have an information fake cloud that can cover the actions of what is becoming the major power groups internationally. It's as unsettling as it is fascinating. Now, uh, with that, Julian, I say thank you to you, and I'll yield the floor back to Ellen, because I believe we have some people from the audience who would like to ask you a few questions. <coughs> thank you, Julian, and thank you, Ulla. This exchange should give us plenty of material to discuss, and I've seen that people have already lined up uh, to ask direct questions to Julian. And uh, could you please state your name and if you are representing any kind of organization or interest, also state that. The floor is yours. Hello. 
Hi, Julian. Uh, my name is George Kairos. I represent uh, IBGT. And uh, I have a quick question. Uh, the way I see WikiLeaks pioneered this movement for true journalism and inspired many of us, many other organizations. And my question is, because I see, for instance, uh, International Consortium of Investigative Journalists coming up with a mega trillion data that are very important to societies. So I think, do you think there is a movement also like a resistance from society building up these uh, movements from people who see that they are lying and, and uh, manipulating us? That's my question. Thank you. It's a, it's a very interesting question. Uh, there definitely has been, and the successes of WikiLeaks have gone, gone on to inspire other organizations to adopt some parts of its models. In the, the ICIJ case, it's a bit mixed. They've done some very, some very good work in terms of organizing lots of journalists together. Unfortunately, they don't publish. Uh, so wh while there are claims about uh, giant leaks, um, actually the public doesn't have these. Yeah, the public has perhaps a few hundred documents only have been published. Otherwise, it's, it's a, a consortium that has them. The, the benefits are it's a bit bigger consortium than normal. It's not just two or three big news outlets, but it, it's maybe uh, maybe 100 news outlets. But it, it is run from Washington, D.C., and it is they select their news outlets. So it's, there's a mix, yeah. It's a, little, it's a little mixed, but compared to what, is be, what uh, was the status before, it is very, it is very positive. On the reaction side, <coughs> um, well, because, of the cheap, because it's so uh, relatively cheap now to create a website and start a little publisher, uh, there I mean, there has been a reaction for the last 10 years, really. Uh, perhaps the, the last three years uh, in particular. But, but, the, but there's been an enormous back reaction. So quite you know, substantial forces in existing establishments uh, are concerned about the, their in, increasing lack of control. Uh, it's, so that, in, that has, and they're projecting that concern. Uh, some of the concern is perhaps real. Uh, it is a change in the order of things uh, that, that, will, that has downsides. Uh, but but it, is, it is certainly a, a moment, um, yeah, a moment for change to be grabbed. It, it's, it's not simply what's happening with the internet. Uh, it's, uh, it's, that's probably the, the, the leading cause, but it, something else is happening, which is that the <clears throat> Uh, the United States and its international uh, influence architecture is in a, in a post-primacy period. It's, it's very simple to explain. Uh, it's gone from about 50% of global GDP post-World War II to about 25%, uh, and the rest of the, uh, the world is, is developing. Europe is basically static. Um, we can play it out now. China is, has the largest uh, GDP by purchasing power parity, which is the interesting metric. Um, Europe is just below that. 
uh, and the United States is, is again below that. So the, so the West has the, still, as a whole, still has a substantial majority of GDP in those big blocks, uh, but the, the, we're, we're definitely moving away from this unipolar world now for, for, for some years. And the, the, um, the, the empire, uh, is not able to hold on to all that it could hold on to uh, in that yeah in the post uh, Cold War period. It, it's starting to not have the capacity to hold on to all that it, it did hold on to. So that so as a result, there's a, a change in order, uh, and that change in order uh, feels like chaos to certain people. Uh, well, yeah. Thank That's, you. That's basically happening. Thank you. Uh, now we move on to the next question. Could you introduce yourself and speak into the camera so we can see you? My name's Stian, and I'm just wondering, uh, you mentioned the Gulf of Tomkin incident. Um, since we are now living in the wake of consequences of 9-11, do you feel now, with the media failing us, that we need a new investigation of 9-11? Thank you. I mean, it's, it's an interesting question. The original investigation of 9-11 was, of, of course, you can see from, the, from what, which documents were restricted, uh, <coughs> compromised by uh, the United States diplomatic uh, and power, power sensitivities concerning the role of Saudi Arabia, perhaps to a degree, uh, the role of a couple of other uh, states. Um, but I, I don't think, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously all these things should be investigated. It, it, it's, it's quite interesting to see um, after uh, 50 years, uh, new JFK uh, documents coming out. There's not so much interest there directly con concerning the murder, but the, the uh, political environment, but the geopolitical environment, the attempts by the United States to assassinate other people, for example. Uh, yeah, is is quite quite revealing. On on the on the nine eleven issue generally, uh, yeah, I I don't I don't think it is particularly important uh, in the sense that uh, every day or, or every few weeks, WikiLeaks and and some other publishers uh, publish proof of very serious existing conspiracies that are happening right now or just a couple of years ago uh, in order to start wars or steal billions of dollars. Uh, th these things, I think, can have more of a, a change. There, there's a, a certain view in relation to 9-11 that it, it's some kind of holy grail that would, would shake the, the existing order of things. I don't think it would, even if it came out that there were you know, some rogues, uh, rogue agents uh, involved. And that, that's how it would be positioned, no matter who it was. Thank you. Then we move on to the next question. Thank you. Uh, my name is uh, Klaus Knag. I am uh, administrating a, a rule of law group on Facebook with 3,000 members um, called Domofficekandatis uh, about judges oath. Uh, I want to address um, um, who is in power of defining the truth or 
actually redefining it. Uh, <coughs> and uh, the, the typical we see is that um, when um, those in power uh, has been caught with a pant stone, the law typically don't apply to them. Uh, I will refer to Montesquieu's tyranny law. Uh, no tyranny is more cruel than which is practiced in the shadow of the law and which the trapping of justice, that is, one would drone the unfortunate by the very plank by which he would hope to be saved. And, and typically, uh, you know, when they do is they kind of the different uh, separation of powers, a step up for each other, like uh, uh, the national uh, attorney general in Norway, he uh, uh, will never investigate if judges have uh, violated. Uh, Could you formulate a question, duty. please? So uh, I, uh, I just wonder if you have experienced, you know, that you know. Important laws and so on suddenly became unimportant, uh, and and maybe minor laws. You know, uh, first like humanity, uh, you have been facing, and then you are facing maybe criminal charges for something smaller, and you know they redefine. And this is difficult. It's very difficult to uh, you know go through all the laws and everything. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, that, that, is, that is the nature of power. It defines itself through its own exceptionality, i.e. its own ability to not follow the laws that it says everyone else must follow, uh, or to uh, uh, allege that, that people are involved in offences uh, where they are not. So that's, happen that's happened to me uh, personally in many, many different ways. Uh, it's just come out here in the UK, for example, that the there was a conspiracy between the UK uh, and Sweden. I was never charged in that case and, I, and I've won it, but the, it's come out that there was a conspiracy, secret files being, being kept in Sweden that were untraceable. That's how they're described by the, by the Swedish officials. We are keeping a secret file that is untraceable, that only uh, one Swedish official, another Swedish official know about and they're the, U the UK end, uh, and then to <coughs> destroy and hide uh, documents and so on. You can also see it, uh, yeah, in the, in the behavior of many, many states. Uh, the, in my own case, the behavior of the, the UK in not recognizing the decision of the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, which in uh, 2006 uh, ruled that I'm being illegally detained. It was a, you know, we went to competitive litigation. Uh, I took the UK and Sweden uh, to the highest body in the world to assess whether someone is being unlawfully held or not. Uh, and the, we submitted our arguments, the UK responded, uh, and it lost. It appealed, uh, re-recognizing the jurisdiction, and it lost again, and it refused to, it just then ignored the, the judgment and, re, and refused to implement it. So, sure, it happens all the time. It is, it is the nature of power. Uh, the killing of Socrates, uh, well, that was legal. Uh, Jesus, that was legal. Uh, the Holocaust, uh, within the realm of the Third Reich, uh, that was legal. So, hanging of blacks, slavery, all legal. So that's, that's the 
that's the nature of the law. I, I think the, the, way I look, the way I look at it is, um, of course, the, the law is unjust. No, no state can avoid the corruption that is involved of administrating law to, its, to itself. Uh, you ca that can't be avoided. But insofar, and insofar as we can make, the, make laws predictable, even though they are unjust, uh, we have an opportunity to structure our, our law, sorry, we have an opportunity to structure our lives to avoid the injustice. For example, uh, uh, a cliff is very unjust. You never did anything to it, you're just walking along and bang, you fall over the cliff and die. A cliff is extremely unjust. It's very unfair, but you know exactly where it is. Uh, and so um, you avoid it. It's the, the arbitrariness uh, in the abuse of law, not simply the unfairness. Uh, this arbitrariness which can uh, strike at, at people um, like lightning. Uh, uh, Julian, I, I, I hate to interrupt. Uh, if you could, we have five more people lining up here and we only okay. have from our we'll program about six minutes. So um, we like your elaborate uh, answers, but uh, just to allow for more people to speak. Yeah. The next question, please. Well, uh, hello, Julian. Thank you for your time. I'm Raimundo. I was wondering if you think in the effort of spreading truth and transparency through leaks, there is room for a cost-benefit analysis regarding the consequences of leaking, leaking information, or do you think providing access to, tr to trust overcome these considerations? And a follow-up, if possible, do you think that weak leaks could be used as a propaganda tool for groups with strong intelligence that are still spreading truth, but that could be skewed to a certain sector? Thank you. Well, um, powerful groups, uh, by, de by definition, are connected to establishment press, and that is the best place in the world to, to get out propaganda uh, because they don't publish full documents, and therefore they can't be assessed by everyone forensically and argued about whether they're true or not. Uh, WikiLeaks has a, a very enviable uh, record of accuracy, uh, perfect. So a perfect record of accuracy of authenticating what we publish is what we say we publish. There's, there's no publisher in the world uh, that is, publishes any substantial volume uh, that has a, a record as good as that. Now, to be fair, uh, our job is a little easier. It's, a, it's much clearer. It's either authentic official document or it's not. It's pretty much a black, black and white, um, whether it's been modified or it is, it is pristine. Um, can the Good. next question? Yes. Hi, my name is Halwa. Uh, thank you for your time. And my question, uh, do liberal democracies have the necessary tools to deal with fake news? Or will we ever reach such, do we ever? Well, I mean, it's, Liberal democracies almost, almost by definition, are fake news. It, it's the, it's, it's the expression as a result of them being both liberal in the, in the real sense that those of us, not me, but those of us who are in so-called liberal democracies, do benefit from that certain type, certain types of freedom, uh, and being democracies. So. The people being free to do things and uh, 
there being a democracy means that what is in people's heads is extremely important. That the, the, the system can't, the existing order cannot uh, survive without controlling what is in people's heads. So the, so very <laughs> sophisticated uh, fake news system uh, evolves uh, in democracies. I, in, in some ways it's, it's, it's interesting to think about which comes first, which is the horse and which is the cart. If you have um, a relatively free press, uh, it, is it the case that you end up um, with a uh, more democratic forms and, as a re and then in response to that, an increasing demand to control the press in various ways? Uh, or if you have a relatively democratic intrinsics, such as a widely dis dispersed popul population, not too clustered in one point, uh, do you then end up with a kind of democratic uh, phenomenon, which then um, can uh, permit uh, 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 certain forms of press to exist? Thank you. Next question, please. Could you state your name too? Yeah, um, hi, my name's May, and it's kind of a question related to the last one. Um, you said in the beginning of your... Of your talk, um, that fake news has been used by all different sides, and that's basically been turned uh, around 180 degrees, and that it's become a catch-all term. And I was wondering if you feel like there's any hope for reconciliation between all of the different sides, and if we could ever get to an era that's kind of post-fake news, and if we should want to get to an era that's post-fake news. So what should be done to get less fake news, and should we want to get less fake news? Thanks. Yeah, it's, 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 it's difficult. Uh, the truth is expensive to create. Look at WikiLeaks, it, it's, quite, it's quite hard. I used, I used to have a, a very different view. For, for example, um, institutions as a byproduct of their own institutional process, their own logistical process, uh, produce mountains of true information. Yeah. How they order things, the decisions that they're made, of course there's certain internal psychological plays, but from the outside, a mountain of information is, every, every institution is sustained by it. Uh, and so the, the amount of fake information that every institution can pr produce uh, is relatively small compared to that mountain of true information that it has to have to simply sustain its operations. Uh, and so that WikiLeaks can stick its straw, if you like, for, on behalf of the rest of the world into these repositories of information that every institution has, of true information, take it out and present it to the world. But the automation of, um, of distorted information uh, and its automated uh, distribution uh, is actually something that is quite hard to compete with because, because once you start automating uh, the production of false information, uh, the marginal cost per additional piece of information produced is, you know, starts to approach zero. So the, 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 the clash of the different camps uh, claiming fake news, well, I mean, they're, they're all right. 
to a degree, essentially all right, that the, the, the various political, political sorry, the various uh, media are producing fake news that benefits them. Um, and the result is, I think, uh, it pushes various groups to increasing bifurcation. So increasing uh, separation between different groups because the, um, there's a, a, claim, a claim about the other and these claims become more uh, false and are used to create greater unity within a particular group, especially in res response to disorder. That's oh, part of what is happening now, that the, that the increasing <coughs> false claims, where they're coming from existing establishment aligned press outfits or individuals uh, about fears of the, of the other particular countries, Russia, for example, but also within Russia about other countries. Uh, these, I believe, are motivated to try and pull together um, the existing order in the face of the destabilization, which is occurring from other factors. So I, well, I don't see them coming together. Uh, thank you so much, Julian. I'm sorry to say that um, the time is up for this part of the program. Um, with these words, uh, we end now this first session. Thank you for your contribution. We rest assured that you will continue to work, uh, the work of WikiLeaks from London, but hopefully you'll be able to join the free world in the near future. We wish you luck in all your endeavors. Thank you and goodbye, Julian. Thank you. We will now move directly on to in our program and uh, we will move on to our two next panelists and I pass the word on to Jonathan Hayward who will talk on today's theme. So jo Jonathan, can you come up and then if John Pilger will sit there as well, that would be great. Done. So you just take a seat over you there, to, and then you can. You just sit first. No, you start. You start, and you go ahead and sit. How is that? That's good. All right. Are you ready? I'm ready. Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, wow. Um, I think before we go on, I should pay. Um, we should pay credit to Ellen and Ulle for managing uh, a, a technical and intellectual challenge of speaking across a thousand mile distance about such an extraordinary range of global issues. And I, for one, although I have lived in London for many years, very near Julian, uh, where he is in the embassy, I've never actually met him before, so I've traveled a thousand miles to meet him by video link, and I was quite ready for the video link to break or for there to be a problem, but there wasn't, so well done. Um, look, it's, it's a pleasure to be back here in Bergen. I was here earlier this year for the Holberg Prize. Um, as you can tell, I'm not Norwegian. I'm sorry about that. Uh, I'm not Australian either. I'm more sorry about that. Um, although I'm not Norwegian, I did grow up in a Viking village. 
Uh, we had Vikings in England as well. You came over and joined us for a few hundred years. And I, I grew up in a village called Ulleskelf in Yorkshire in the north of England, founded, we guess, by a guy called Ulla. Um, a small village, one street, one school, one church, one shop. And I always um, assumed that many of the families living there were descendants of those original Vikings who sailed across the North Sea in the ninth century. Um, now, look, most of us did not grow up in Viking villages or villages at all. Most of us grew up in towns and cities, but still we made kind of virtual communities for ourselves, our friends, our family, our schoolmates. We sort of recreated the kind of community that King Ulla and his, fa his clan would have known in the ninth century in England, or the kinds of community that, in fact, humans have lived in for the last 200,000 years, small groups of maybe 150 people or so. Some anthropologists say that humans are really designed to operate within groups of about 150 people. Within that number, we, um, we can know everyone well at first hand. In a larger number than that, we start to lose the ability to know who to trust, who's reliable, who is loyal, and who perhaps is best avoided. So in a small community of known individuals, we can make good decisions because we know the sources of the information that we are relying on, and we know what of that information is trustworthy. But of course, we don't live in communities of 150 people. We live in cities and nations of 5, 10, 50, 100 million people or more. We live in a Europe of half a billion people or more, a planet of 7 billion people and rising every second. And yet, we still need to cooperate with each other. We still need to find some way of finding out what is going on in the next village, the next city, the next country. At the very least, we need to be able to talk to each other. And over the centuries, all kinds of communications media have developed to help us to do that. Postal and telegraph services allowed us to send messages to each other and to have private conversations. Newspapers and radio and television stations allowed us to share information with millions of people and to debate things with each other in what we call the public sphere. Now, this public sphere was not in any way natural or God-given. It was a function of the available technology and the legal and political order of the time. But we kind of got used to it, and we knew our way around it. We grew up in it. Most of us in this hall, I would say, grew up in that public sphere. Now, some of the information that we were exposed to there was designed to sell us things, and we called that advertising. Some of it seemed to serve the public interest more broadly, and we called that news. And some of the information clearly and nakedly served the interests of a particular group, and we called that propaganda. And we learned how to tell the difference, to some extent, between news, advertising, and propaganda. Within the last 17 years, all that has changed. The old public sphere has been hit by a series of massive explosions. The internet, mobile phone technology, search engines, and social media. And the most powerful players in this new landscape, as Julian said, are undoubtedly Google and Facebook. These companies have grown very large, very fast. And according to the recent research, they now have direct influence 
over more than 70% of all internet traffic in the world. Google and Facebook have, in the words of Mark Zuckerberg, moved very fast and they have broken things. And Zuckerberg set that out as an aspiration for Facebook. They are changing the way that we hold, receive, and impart information and ideas. They are changing the shape of our public sphere. Never in human history has so much changed in such a short space of time and on such a global scale. And I think we urgently need to talk about what's happening and what we, as citizens, want to do about it. So the changes that are taking place to the global public sphere go to the heart of how we talk to each other. These changes, I would say, are not inherently good or bad. We shouldn't be nostalgic. We shouldn't look back to some halcyon days that have gone. We are where we are. We can only move forwards. The old public sphere was far from perfect, and there are many good and exciting things about the new public sphere. But I think there are problems, or at least challenges with it, that we need to face up to. And I see five challenges or problems with the new public sphere as it is currently evolving. Firstly, the new public sphere has a problem with gatekeepers. Now, access to the old public sphere was tightly controlled. Editors, owners, publishers, and producers, almost all of them middle-aged white men, were the gatekeepers. They decided what went into their newspapers and radio and TV stations, and the rest of us were a largely passive audience. The new public sphere is apparently open to anyone with an internet connection. The old gatekeepers can only watch as billions of us rush to share our thoughts and feelings with the world. They have become the audience, and we have become the actors. So far, so good. It looks like the days of the gatekeeper are over, but they are not. The new gatekeepers are no longer just middle-aged white men, although I have to say there are still quite a lot of middle-aged white men around. I speak as one. Um, but the new gatekeepers, the real gatekeepers, are algorithms, incredibly long and tightly secret calculations which determine the content that appears in our news feeds and search results. And unlike the old gatekeepers, those algorithms don't usually stop us from entering the public sphere, but they do decide what we see when we get there and how many people will see what we have to say. And if our thoughts and feelings, our expressions, are not sufficiently optimized for the search engine or shareable on the platforms, then the algorithm will send our content to the back of the queue or to the bottom of the newsfeed. And we all know the feeling, I'm sure, when our post on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram does not attract enough shares for our liking. It's a very sad and lonely feeling. But if we pay the gatekeepers enough, or if we learn how to manipulate their algorithms, we can attract audiences towards what we want them to see, whether that is real news, fake news, advertising, or propaganda. And for those who can do this, that's a really happy feeling. It's the feeling of power. The gatekeepers haven't disappeared. They've simply gone underground. They are the owners of the search engines and the platforms. They are the algorithms which these companies use. And they are the advertisers, the campaigners, and governments which are working with these hidden gatekeepers to shape this new public sphere. The second problem that the new public sphere has is a very big problem with journalism itself. 
In the old public sphere, commercial newspapers and broadcasters were funded largely through advertising. Now, because the old gatekeepers controlled audiences' attention, they could also control access to those audiences. They effectively taxed anyone who wanted to get their message in front of an audience in the form of advertising. Now, some say, many say, that the advertising-based business model brought the media too close to the interests of the market, that journalism reflected a narrow and elite view of the world, or that it set out to distract people from what was really going on around them. Now, there may be truth in that, but I don't think it tells the whole story. We've known since the mass media emerged in the 19th century that there's a conflict between news owners and advertisers and shareholders on one side who want to sell things, products and services, but also ideas, and journalists who, on some level, want to tell the truth. We've seen this play out in books and films, where newspaper owners are represented as press barons like Citizen Kane, using their newspapers to pursue their personal and political agendas, whilst journalists are heroes and heroines standing up to authority at the expense of their jobs or even their lives. Now, these myths are simplistic ways of representing relationships which are in practice much more complex. All journalists are not heroes and heroines, and all press owners are not necessarily evil Machiavellian schemers. But I think that myth does capture a very real tension at the heart of journalism, a battle for control of the news. And if it was a question of brute force, then the owner would always win that battle and the truth would always be jeopardized by the owner's political or commercial agenda. That's why, since the early 20th century, we've developed rules for journalism. We've said that journalism has a duty to hold the powerful to account, and that it must do so by discovering and revealing the truth. We have told news owners to ensure that their journalists play by these rules. In the United States, fact-checking has been taken to the level of an art form, and antitrust laws have, at least until recently, prevented American broadcasters and publishers from monopolizing the media in any one region. In Europe, we've developed various forms of media regulation, seeking to uphold truthfulness. Journalism unions have been formed to stand up to news owners and the fact that we have a wide range of commercial news sources together with public service broadcasting has exposed audiences to a range of perspectives. Some would say that range is still too limited, but nonetheless, there has been a range. And as a result, journalism, in my view, has played an immensely important role in our societies. Now, if the advertising model goes as a result of the new media, and these journalism norms, these professional standards, disappear at the same time, I fear that we will lose something very precious. Thirdly, the new public sphere has a problem with propaganda. In the old public sphere, we could easily tell the difference between news, advertising, and propaganda. Now, of course, news could serve a political purpose, and propaganda might be dressed up as journalism, but to a large extent, the different forms of information were presented in different ways, in different spaces, in different contexts, different registers, and we could tell one from the other. Now, everything flows past our eyes in an endless stream of homogenous content. 
There are very few indicators to distinguish news from advertising from propaganda. And these forms of communication are treated as though they are all of equal value. And the old distinctions between different forms of content maybe didn't always work, and maybe didn't always serve us well, but at least they helped us to navigate. We had some kind of map to the media landscape. We've now lost that map. And as anyone knows who has ever tried to travel without a map, to walk in the Norwegian mountains, perhaps, without a map, it's very dangerous. It's very easy to be misled and confused by false landmarks. And there's always the risk of trolls waiting <laughs> beneath bridges or behind corners. Fourthly, the new public sphere has a problem with privacy. Now, look, in the old public sphere, we didn't worry much about privacy. We took it for granted, reading our newspapers, watching our televisions, or communicating on the telephone or by letter. We took it for granted that we were doing so privately. Nowadays, we leave a trace everywhere we go. Sometimes we choose to go public. For better or worse, we go out there and we post words and pictures and videos that reveal our innermost thoughts and feelings to the world. But much of the time, we believe we are acting privately. We search for information, we look at websites, we send emails, we order books. Maybe we use a pseudonym, believing that that will help to protect our privacy. But unless we are very careful and very expert, we are probably sharing highly personal data, exactly as Julian has said, with a range of large and powerful companies. And those companies, in turn, may well be sharing our data with advertisers and governments. Now, it may seem strange to talk about privacy, the importance of privacy, in relation to the public sphere. But I think we desperately need a private sphere to complement and support the public sphere. We need somewhere to go where we can think and express ourselves without the fear of being watched or targeted as a result. So if we think of George Orwell, we think of one of the great advocates of free speech and press freedom, but Orwell is also a fantastic advocate for privacy. If you think about 1984, the most frightening thing about 1984 is that the characters can never be private. They have no hiding place from Big Brother. And because they can never be private, they can never truly express themselves. So the problem for privacy is, in my view, also a problem for freedom. And fifthly and finally, the new public sphere has a problem with cynicism. We know that trust has collapsed across the developed world. This is not necessarily a bad thing. There's no reason why we should automatically, naively place our trust in anyone or everyone. I think we trusted you. Uh, um, we should not automatically place our trust in anyone or anything. Uh, people and institutions should earn our trust. They should be trustworthy. Exactly as Honora O'Neill said when she was here six months ago accepting the Holberg Prize. So the problem is not that we've lost trust, but we have found cynicism. I think the new public sphere is to a large extent defined by a cynical attitude towards information. Skeptics are not cynics. Skepticism is different. Skeptics ask questions, but they are prepared to listen to the answers. Good journalists are inherent skeptics. 
Cynics think that they already know the answer. They already know that no one can be trusted. No institutions, no experts, no politicians, no journalists, no NGOs, no scientists, no nobody. This attitude, this cynical attitude, benefits no one, and it makes us highly vulnerable to being manipulated. Because the funny thing about people who trust no one is that they believe anything. They swim in a sea of half-truths, lies, and conspiracy theories. And this makes it very difficult for us to act collectively, because collective action relies on shared information and shared truths. So a culture of cynics is a culture of inaction, of passivity, a culture where, paradoxically, the powerful go unchallenged. So, the new public sphere has a problem with gatekeepers, with journalists, with propaganda, with privacy, and with cynicism. Put together, I think these five problems add up to a pretty big headache for all of us. But there are people out there who love it. There are people out there who are thriving in this unregulated and chaotic environment. Terrorists, propagandists, purveyors of fake news, unscrupulous advertisers. Old media, of course, was vulnerable to being captured by powerful forces, but because we saw that risk, we were able to some extent to mitigate it through cultural norms, professional standards, and legal regulations. News providers, advertisers, and political groups were subject to some modest constraints in order to create a level playing field between the providers and the consumers of information. Media content regulation, media ownership regulation, advertising regulation, data protection, privacy, defamation, laws on extreme pornography and hate speech, and rules on how political parties and campaigners can communicate via the mass media with the public. Now, you can argue, and you always will argue, about the balance of those laws and restraints and regulations, but I think it was very important that we had that landscape in order, as I say, to balance the power. And taken together with state subsidies, at least in Europe, for public service broadcasting, these interventions were designed to create a public sphere in which we, as citizens and consumers, were able, or were more likely, to be able to make good decisions based on good information. But new media tells us that it must not be regulated. It says it is simply a platform for ordinary people to share information and ideas. But I think we can see very clearly now that new media is just as vulnerable to being captured by powerful interests as old media, if not more so, and it is ordinary people it's you and I who pay the price for this. So I think we have two options in response. We can sit back and wait. We can wait for the search engines and the platforms to sort it out among themselves, to regulate themselves, perhaps, to create some new norms and standards in the public interest. We could wait for other companies to emerge, to challenge their monopoly power, other search engines, other platforms. We could wait for new forms of journalism, new business models for journalism to emerge that will replace the old forms of the past. I think if we sit and wait, we'll be sitting here and waiting for a very long time for any of those things to happen. The alternative is that we start to talk carefully and cautiously about regulation. We dare to break the taboo that says 
the internet cannot be regulated. We agree that regulation does not mean censorship. It means helping to create a level playing field on which information and ideas of all kinds can be shared, where power can be held to account, and where societies can constructively debate the way forward. This means taking steps to bring the new gatekeepers out from the shadows and into the light, to hold their algorithms accountable, just as we tried to hold the old gatekeepers accountable for what they chose to publish. It means finding, urgently finding, new business models for journalism. If necessary, imposing taxes on the new media players in order to build capacity within the news industry, or perhaps passing new laws to incentivize public interest journalism. It means finding better ways to distinguish between the different kinds of content that are fed to us by search engines and social platforms. This does not mean that we should be looking to remove content from the public sphere, but we should at least be able to know where that content came from, who paid for it, and what they're trying to get out of it. And it means protecting our privacy. Of course, journalists and others will sometimes need to breach our privacy in the public interest. Privacy is not an absolute right. But this should be the exception, not the rule. Otherwise, we simply replace the surveillance state of 1984 with a surveillance market where personal data is bought and sold with a hugely chilling effect on our freedom. And it means replacing our cynicism with a more constructive skepticism. We should teach ourselves to ask the right questions in order to ensure that power is used in the public interest. We should not simply assume that power will only ever be used for selfish or oppressive reasons. In short, we should and we could take responsibility for the new public sphere. We have extraordinary tools at our disposal. We should learn to use them. We should not let them use us. If we get this right, we can strengthen the public sphere so that future generations can make good decisions based on good information and constructive debate. If we get it wrong, we expose our descendants to a world of hidden gatekeepers, misinformation, propaganda, surveillance, and what is ultimately, in my view, a debilitating cynicism. I think the task is very, very difficult. But for me, the choice between those two options is very easy. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Do you want water, by the way? We now move directly over to, on to John Pilger. And we ask those of you who want to ask questions to the two panelists to please line up during the last part of Pilger's talk. He will be talking for 25 minutes. The floor is yours. Thank you. And thank you uh, for all the hard work you've done organizing this, Julian, in London, and people asking their questions. Very impressive. A few weeks ago, the Guardian newspaper in London published a major article with the following headlines. Be ashamed. Salmon criticized over Russian 
TV link. RT launches show despite propaganda concerns. The former First Minister of Scotland, Alex Salmon, has a new discussion show on RT, the television channel which used to be known as Russia Today. What's more, Salmon scooped the entire British media with an interview with the deposed Catalan president, Carles Puigdemont. Why should Salmon be ashamed? What exactly are The Guardian's propaganda concerns? The implication of The Guardian article was that RT was a sinister force, that Alex Salmon had no right to his show, and that a mildly dissenting view of the world had no place in the media. Consider the irony. Here was The Guardian's media editor, Graeme Ruddick, parroting disinformation, propaganda, and smear, along with the suspicions, quote-unquote, of Western security services. James Clapper, the former head of America's National Intelligence Agency, was quoted, RT, said Clapper, was a mouthpiece of Russian government propaganda. What The Guardian didn't tell us was that Clapper was the notorious liar who denied under oath to the US Congress that the NSA collected information on millions of Americans and millions of the rest of us, a fact that Edward Snowden revealed. Clapper later resigned, narrowly escaping charges of perjury. The Guardian also quoted that bastion of free speech, the British Foreign Office. The US Department of Justice was cited even though no crime had been committed. The two demon words, Kremlin and Putin, adorn Mr. Ruddick's drivel. Such is the state of journalism, mainstream journalism, in 2017. What on earth is going on? If RT is the Kremlin's soft power, as The Guardian suggested, one wonders what the BBC is with its long documented history of suppression, of doing the bidding of British governments and of serving Western power. During the Irish War, the BBC banned, doctored or delayed more than 50 major TV programs. Has RT performed such a censorial role? And there is the notoriety of the BBC's reporting of Iraq but I shall come to that shortly. <clears throat> I also appear on RT from time to time. So do people of widely varying political views from right to left. There's even a scattering of independent critical thinking, a quality now obsolete in the mainstream media. Unlike its mainstream competitors, there is no warmongering. How threatening RT's growing popularity must be. Imagine its brainwashed audience, people like myself, who now regard much of corporate news, from which people like myself have come, as unwatchable and unreadable. The term fake news was not invented by Donald Trump. <clears throat> Neither was 
it invented by social media. It was contrived and it has been reinforced by the liberal media in the United States and carried by the liberal media in the UK and in Europe. The aim clearly has been to deflect a growing public awareness of the media's long-time role as disseminators of state and vested interest propaganda, the very thing RT is accused of without evidence. So much is devoid of evidence these days, yet evidence is the root of real journalism. But who needs evidence when you're running a witch hunt or a campaign of rumours and hearsay when you're shouting jacuz at people? Who needs the presumption of innocence? Who needs the right of reply, the demands of proof and natural justice? Who needs the rights that people have died fighting for since the Magna Carta? What matters, it seems, is indignation. The Russians did it. Putin did it. Kevin Spacey is guilty. The media has become a lynch mob. This is not fake news. This is fake journalism. 100 years ago, at the height of the imperial slaughter known as the First World War, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, David Lloyd George, shared a secret with the editor of the Manchester Guardian, which became the Guardian, C.P. Scott. If the people really knew the truth, he said, the war would be stopped tomorrow, but they don't know and they can't know, unquote. That principle of censorship by omission has ruled the mainstream media ever since. The BBC was founded on it, with Lord John Reith, its founder, secretly writing propaganda for the Tory government during a general strike. In 1945, the celebrated New York Times correspondent, W.H. Lawrence, set the post-war standard for collusion by lying about the true effects of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima. His front page story was headlined, no radioactivity in Hiroshima ruin, unquote. It was fake news. Eight years later, the same distinguished newspaper ran a similar front page story headline, how communists took control of Guatemala. It was fake news. The reporter was Sidney Grusin. He claimed that the Russians and local communists had taken control of the small Latin American state. Not only was this false, as the archives have long since shown, but the opposite was true. The United States, which had exploitative interests in Guatemala, had violently overthrown that country's first democratically elected reformist government. The president of Guatemala, Jacobo Abenz, was stripped naked at the airport as he was thrown out of his own country. Today, this is known in Guatemala as the great crime. It was a crime that depended on the collusion of the media, of journalism, 
In 2009, researchers at the University of the West of England published a study that examined BBC reporting of Venezuela over more than a decade. Out of 304 BBC reports, only three, three, mentioned any of the positive policies introduced by the democratically elected government of Hugo Chavez. There was almost nothing on Venezuela's historic initiatives, nothing on human rights legislation, nothing on food programs, healthcare initiatives, poverty reduction. The greatest literacy program in history received only passing reference. An unprecedented record of democratic elections was suppressed as if to show that Chavez somehow lacked electoral support. One BBC report compared him to Hitler. Venezuela is getting the treatment again. Jacuz. Venezuela has problems. The price of oil has collapsed. Chavez is dead. And the BBC, The Guardian, The Times, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and the rest are lined up like gravediggers to bury that flawed democracy that inspired millions of the world's poorest people and gave them hope. There are strict rules or designations imposed by the purveyors of real fake news, that isn't a contradiction. To paraphrase the late Ed Herman, some news is worthy, other news is unworthy. Some victims are worthy, others are unworthy. In the 1990s, Western public opinion was groomed by the media for an illegal assault on Yugoslavia. A multi-ethnic semi-socialist federation, independent of the United States and Europe, both of which wanted to exploit it, especially Germany. The Serbs were told that if they didn't agree to a NATO occupation and to convert their economy to the so-called free market, their country would be bombed. That was in an appendix. It wasn't reported throughout the West, appendix to a, a so-called peace agreement at the so-called Rambouet peace talks, it was the kind of offer the Mafia make. None of it was news. The destruction of Yugoslavia was a worthy cause. In the spring of 1999, the US Defense Secretary, William Cohen, claimed that the government in Belgrade had murdered 100,000 men from Kosovo. That was fake. David Sheffer, the US ambassador at large for war crimes, increased this figure to, and I quote, 225,000 ethnic Albanian men aged between 14 and 59. That was fake too. The British media took its cue from Tony Blair, who invoked the memory of the Holocaust and compared the people of Kosovo with the Jews under the Nazis. Flight from genocide said the, da genocide, said the Daily Mail, 
echoes of the Holocaust, chorus the sun and the mirror. NATO bombers flew at high altitudes. They were mainly British and American aircraft, but Norwegian aircraft took part as well on this assault on another European country. Depleted uranium and cluster bombs were dropped on factories, bridges, schools, churches. At least 500 people were killed. How shameful it was. But surely mass graves in Kosovo would provide Britain, America, Norway with justification. International forensic teams swarmed over Kosovo. The FBI flew in to investigate what the media called the largest crime scene in the FBI's forensic history. The FBI found not a single mass grave and went home. The Spanish forensic team also returned home with its leader complaining angrily that he and his colleagues had become part of, and I quote, a semantic pirouette by the war propaganda machines because we did not find one, not one, mass grave. The suffering of the people of Iraq were also designated an unworthy cause. During the 1990s, countless Iraqi men, women, and children died and suffered as a result of a medievalist blockade imposed by the United States, uh, by the United Nations, <laughs> in reality, by the United States and Britain. I saw the evidence and I filmed it. A true holocaust had begun, including an epidemic of cancers caused by the use of depleted uranium in the first Gulf War. Iraqi hospitals were denied basic medicines syringes, rubber gloves. When the UN humanitarian official, Dennis Halliday, resigned in protest, he was airbrushed from the media, or he was vilified. On the BBC, the famous presenter, Jeremy Paxman, shouted at him, aren't you just an apologist for Saddam Hussein? The Guardian described this as one of Paxman's memorable moments. Paxman signed a £1 million book deal. The land, of, the land invasion of Iraq in 2003 was a grotesque hoax, promoted by fabrications masquerading as news, as journalism. Notably in the New York Times and the London Observer, both liberal newspapers. In 2009, I interviewed David Rose, the Observer journalist, whose reports claimed that Saddam Hussein was linked to Al-Qaeda and 9-11 and had weapons of mass destruction. It was fake. Rose, <coughs> Rose told me he'd been duped. I can make no excuses, he said. What happened in Iraq was a crime, a crime on a very large scale. I asked him, does that make journalists accomplices to war crimes? Yes, he replied. Such contrition is highly unusual. 
His newspaper never apologized. Its fawning over Blair was matched by that of its owner, The Guardian, where Blair's ascendancy was described as mythical. During the invasion of Iraq, I filmed a number of interviews with senior journalists in the United States and asked them what would have happened had the media challenged Bush's and Blair's lies instead of amplifying and echoing them. The renowned investigative journalist Charles Lewis and the former CBS anchor Dan Rather answered almost identically, there is, said Lewis, a very good chance we would have not have gone to war, unquote. In other words, a million people might have lived, four million people might not have fled their homes, a society might not have been dismembered, and the monstrous ISIS might not have appeared. In Britain, the propaganda role is often attributed to the right-wing tabloid press. But these have now become almost a parody as, as their failed campaign against Jeremy Corbyn at the last British election demonstrated. The power of corporate media today rests in the liberal wing, notably the BBC and The Guardian, The New York Times and The Washington Post. These are respectable, they have credibility, and because they have credibility, their propaganda is the most believable and the most insidious. In 2011, the United States, France, Britain, and Norway, and the rest of NATO destroyed Libya. The principal weapon was fake news. NATO launched a total of 9,700 airstrikes and sorties, of which more than a third were aimed at civilian targets. NATO launched, the United Nations reported that, and I quote, most of the children killed were under the age of 10. The invasion of Libya and the murder of the Libyan president, Colonel Gaddafi, was justified by news that he was planning, quote, genocide against his own people in the city of Benghazi. We knew, said President Obama, that if we waited one more day, Benghazi could suffer a massacre that would have reverberated across the region and stained the conscience of the world, unquote. That was a lie, a fabrication cooked up by Islamist militias facing defeat by Libyan government forces. They told Reuters there would be, and I quote, a real bloodbath, a massacre like we saw in Rwanda, unquote. Reported on March the 14th, 2011, this provided the first spark for NATO's inferno. There was no massacre. Many of the rebels were secretly supplied and trained by Britain's SAS. Many of them went to Syria to join ISIS. Unknown to the British public, the intelligence agency MI5 had maintained Libyan terror and a terrorist assets in Manchester for 20 years. 
the suicide bomber allegedly responsible for the atrocity that killed 22 young people in Manchester last May was part of this anti-Qaddafi extremist group known as the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group. For more than 20 years, it was cultivated and encouraged by MI5. Islamic extremism and the British government go back a long way. I recommend the new edition of the historian Mark Curtis's book, Secret Affairs. It will tell you what the news doesn't. This brings me back to Russia, Russiagate. Throughout the Cold War, we were told incessantly about a missile gap between the Russians and the United States. Russia was said to be ahead in the development of nuclear weapons. When a secret CIA report informed the White House that the Russians were actually far behind, a so-called Team B report was fabricated that put the Russians well ahead. This became front page news and it was fake. As a direct result, the Cold War was continued and more and more nuclear weapons were built and deployed. In 2017, here we go again. According to the hysteria currently sweeping Washington, the Russians are plotting to undermine the great American democracy. If satire wasn't dead, we'd be convulsing with laughter. In 2014, the US effectively overthrew its 56th government since the Second World War, many of them democracies. Do we know this? When Harold Pinter accepted the Nobel Prize for Literature in 2005, he compared and contrasted our knowledge of the crimes of the Soviet Union, about which we know a great deal, with the crimes of America, of which, and I quote him, never happened. Nothing ever happened. Even while it was happening, it wasn't happening. It didn't matter. It was of no interest. Unquote. In 2014, the Obama administration overthrew the elected government in Ukraine. The coup was led by Europe's most active Nazis. In the Western media, this was converted to a Russian invasion. The American coup never happened. It didn't matter. It was of no interest. Since that coup in Ukraine, the greatest buildup of military forces in modern times has taken place along Russia's western border and in the Baltics. Not since Hitler's invasion in 1941 have foreign troops presented such a demonstrable threat to Russia. Norway, which has shared a peaceful border with Russia for centuries, is taking part in these provo provo <laughs> provocative actions. One of America's so-called, quote, defensive missile shields is planned for the high north. Why? Why are Norwegian troops 
in the Baltics commanded by American generals? Why are US Marines in Norway? If I was a Norwegian, I would want to know why a leaked NATO document says that uh, nuclear weapons preparations, once classified as not advisable, are now, and I quote, conceivable. The United States is preparing for a war with Russia and possibly China. Many of the safeguards on first strikes have been lifted. The US is committed to spending $12 trillion on nuclear weapons over the next 30 years. That's $46 million an hour, every hour, 24 hours a day. Is that news? No, it's not. At present, only propaganda is news, but this can change overnight with the first miscalculation the first mistake, the first missile. A triumph of fake news is the tragedy of Syria, as Julian mentioned. The bloodletting in that country is not yet over. The Russians have moved on from their military victory to diplomacy, bringing together Iran, Turkey, and the Syrian government. That's the news. You wouldn't know it. It didn't happen, it didn't matter. Question the propaganda that has consumed most of the reporting of Syria in the West, and it's likely you'll be witch-hunted, even called a Holocaust denier. The suffering of Aleppo in Syria was a crusade by the media, yet almost no Western reporter witnessed it. For news, they relied on so-called rebels, many of whom were foreign jihadists, backed by the US and British governments. But Aleppo is two cities. Western Aleppo, held by Syria, was blown to bits by jihadists, but its suffering was not news, didn't happen, didn't matter, was of no interest. Double standards are the pillars of fake news. Syria's Assad is a murderous official enemy, whereas the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, reports The Guardian, is running a positive revolution and is bursting with, and I quote, a zeal for reform, unquote, words that might have been written by Burson Mastella, the notorious New York public relations firm hired by the Saudis to correct their barbaric image. The zeal for reform might have also included Saudi's zeal for buying British and American weapons with which to kill children in Yemen. In the UK, every day, we read or hear the word austerity. To most British people, austerity means the collective economic punishment of them, of millions of ordinary people. Services, hospitals, local councils, benefits are all cut to the bone. But austerity is fake news, a political and media construct 
and invention. In 2008, following the great financial crash, a rotten empire of capital was exposed. Banks and leading bankers were revealed as crooked. That was the real news. But after a few months, the media message changed. The rotten empire of capital disappeared and the public were diverted by something called austerity, which meant that the debt of the banks and the corporate crooks had become the burden of ordinary people. Many of the premises of civilized life in Britain were dismantled. These so-called austerity cuts amounted to more than 83 billion pounds, which was almost exactly the amount of tax avoided by the same crooked banks and by corporations such as Amazon and Rupert Murdoch's News UK. In other words, austerity was fake news, pure propaganda that promoted not economic necessity, but an extreme ideology known as neoliberalism. What I find hopeful is that people have begun to call the corporate media to account. Many of us no longer accept the arrogance and defensiveness of a media divinity that rarely has to account for itself. We need a new language in journalism, a new spirit that encourages young journalists to report the world from the ground up, not from the top down. At present, terrorism is always theirs, never ours. Extremists are those who attack us in our cities, never politicians whose decisions condemn thousands to death by bombing and by starvation in stricken countries like Yemen. We need to challenge the rise and rise of public relations pretending to be journalism. We need to challenge fake zeitgeist, such as the obsession with look at me, look at me, which has nothing to do with personal liberation and everything to do with consumerism. A generation ago, a postmodern cult, now known as identity politics, signaled the demise of great collective movements against war, social injustice, and equality, inequality. We need, we need to reclaim the critical issue of class, and especially of the class that people serve, regardless of their gender, regardless of diversity. This applies as much to social media as it does to the mainstream. The only difference is the scale of manipulation. I once met Hitler's filmmaker, Lenny Riefenstahl, whose triumph of the will is considered a classic of propaganda. I asked her why the German bourgeoisie capitulated to the Nazis and she replied that there came a point when a society revealed what she called its submissive void. We need to make haste. Political censorship is becoming routine 
across the world wide web. A free and open internet is to be abolished by the Trump administration. Dissent once tolerated in the, in the mainstream has regressed to a metaphoric underground as liberal democracy, liberal democracy, moves towards a form of corporate dictatorship. This is an historic shift, and the media, both mainstream media and social media, must not be allowed to be the facade of this new order and should be subjected to direct action. To borrow from the great whistleblower, Tom Paine, it's time we stormed the Bastille of words. Thank you. Thank you, John. Now, we should have plenty of material for which to base our next question and answer session. And uh, I call upon the next person. Yes, go ahead. Thank you. Uh, my name is George Kairos, and I'm from IBGT. It's an anti-corruption and uh, anti-crisis management institute. Uh, a question for both. Uh, actually, after this speech, I, I became speechless. Uh, you have shown us, both of you, that societies have been disenfranchised. It seems that there is now a greater awareness among people in general at least growing, and those who work in some of these corporations, financial institutions, like you see the Swiss leaks, Lux leaks, and all these leaks, uh, and government such as uh, private money, it was very exemplary. So the question is, <coughs> uh, do, we do you agree with the this statement that I made, that there's been a greater awareness among people that is bringing out whistleblowers. Is there an increase in the number of whistleblowers? Do you see that, both of you, happening? What's your feeling? Because these are human beings who are inside this, and their families depend for their bread and butter uh, from that salary. If they open their mouth, they are fired and have to face court claims, just like at LuxLeaks and some other ones. Uh, how important do you think it is that this movement grows? This is my question. Before you answer, I just want to ask uh, if any of the panelists want to comment on each other's speeches please try to, to integrate that in the, question, in the answers that you give to the audience. Um, so who would like to start? Some, would you mind summarizing those questions? There was about five questions. Yes. Uh, it was a little hard for me to, to uh, 
to get all of it, but I think one of well, them, uh, the, main, the main one was, was about whistleblowers. If you think there has been an increase of whistleblowers and, and uh, the risk that they take, that right. there is, in fact, a movement going on. Did yeah. that summarize your question? Yes, just That's right. let them answer. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't think there's been an increase in whistleblowers. I quoted Tom Payne. He was a whistleblower. Um, they've always been whistleblowers, but there wasn't always a WikiLeaks. And WikiLeaks really has changed the order of things. WikiLeaks has caused huge panic amongst those who um, tell the truth in private and lie in public and have uh, considerable control over our lives. Um, that's one of the reasons that Julian Assange is sitting as a political refugee in the Ecuadorian embassy in, in London. It's uh, the main reason, actually. And so, uh, in a sense, that's something positive. They're out in the open. We know where they, they are. In the past, they were able to be to use that terrible expression, disappeared. Um, a great whistleblower who gave the Guardian uh, NATO files of the deployment of cruise missiles in Europe uh, in uh, the 1980s, Sarah Tisdale. Um, the Guardian didn't keep her name confidential and uh, she was prosecuted and spent some time in prison. I doubt whether very few people remember that name. Perhaps they do, I hope they do. But now we know Chelsea Manning. We know the great whistleblowers now. That's a very positive step. So we know them. I think that's largely due to the fact that WikiLeaks has such an enormous influence in that the documents and files that it leaks on behalf of the leakers, rather, that it publishes on behalf of the leakers, uh, apply to almost every country on Earth. There are different files. You don't see them in Norway and Britain. We don't see a lot of the files that are published elsewhere. It's such a big, it's such a big impact. That's the difference. Jonathan, would you like to comment? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll try also to pick up on John and Julian's presentations. I mean, it seems to me that I think where we, where we agree is that there is a very powerful force in society called the mass media, the corporate media, that has all sorts of interests of its own, and that they're, they're not necessarily aligned with the interests of society. I guess I'm maybe a little bit more hopeful in that I always think that within any trend, within any phenomenon like that, there is a counter-trend and a counter-phenomenon because otherwise, how would a society ever change? And we know that our societies have changed enormously over the last centuries and thousands of years. And I'm, I'm a kind of Hegelian. I think every thesis has an antithesis. So, you know, I do think that within the, the corporate institutional media and the public service broadcasters across Europe, there are people who are public-spirited and are trying to practice some truthful form of, of journalism, which is of our benefit and not necessarily to the benefit of the people who own those institutions. 
So I guess even though I feel like we're, you know, we're living in very challenging times right now politically and we're very concerned about authoritarianism and a crackdown on dissent, at the same time there is a lot of dissent around and we do have John Pilger and we do have Julian Assange telling very different stories from the mainstream stories and perhaps we would like to hear more of those alternative stories but they're not completely absent, and the whistleblowers are with us, and they are being heard. I think my big concern at the moment is just the question of where does change come from? There is power, there is opposition to power. At the moment, it feels that power is so entrenched that even though the oppositional voices are there, it feels like they're scratching on the edge of something very large and monolithic and unmoving. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a kind of very cautious optimist. I don't believe it's an absolutely black and white situation, but I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to see the signs of change. Good, let's move on to the next question. And could you state your name and formulate a short, precise question? Thank you. I'll try. Thank you. Um, my question, uh, it's about, I'm sure you are uh, familiar with the, with the term fraction, fractional banking. And um, there's a rising concern in Norway and throughout the world about the abolishment of uh, cash. Uh, the banks are paying minus interest on people's money and what's uh, and people are talking about agendas and different things. Uh, what's you, your view on the cash banking thing? I'm not sure I've got one. You don't have an answer? I'm not no. sure that I do. Okay. No, I don't think I I'm have sorry. one. Sorry. Well, I why know. don't you think about it and we'll take the next question, please. Hello, uh, my name is Paul Carlson. Uh, I have a question regarding uh, the problems regarding how all institutions are, in a sense, economic institutions uh, to survive. Uh, and also how we have uh, in the world a system where we have an aggregation of power caused by an aggregation of wealth. And uh, this goes according to uh, uh, the gatekeepers and the new gatekeepers, as you spoke about. Um, those we need protection from being manipulated by um, are those that shape our opinions uh, whenever they have something to gain from it. Um, so how can we get in place regulations to support us and to protect us from, in a way, the same people who have this power to change and influence these regulations themselves? Thank you. <laughs> really, really difficult. I mean, I think um, the fact that we can sit here and we can recognize that there is a problem suggests to me that we must be able to articulate the solution. If, we were, if this really was a situation of absolute brainwashing, none of us would, would know there was a problem. None of us would have any sense that there was anything to be changed. We would all think it was fine. And clearly there are large numbers of people who don't think it's all fine. The challenge is, with any system, there is a tendency towards inertia. Any society, any, any group, any culture tends to prefer to stay the same 
than to change. You know, change is costly. So change comes when someone who is in some position of power feels that ultimately they would rather change than not change. You know, the leverage has to be there. So with media regulation in history, we've tended to see some change, some progress towards public interest regulation, as I would call it, when the media owners have been fearful that the state would crack down even harder on them. So they've come up with some soft form of regulation to mitigate the risk of hard regulation. And I think with Facebook and Google, I think we're in that moment now where I, th I think they do see coming around the track the threat of quite tough statutory regulation in various countries, and partly because they don't want that on principle, and partly also because it's expensive for them to do business differently in different countries because they have to change their algorithms, they will start to self-regulate. And that will be the beginning of a journey. There will be some movement. They have already begun to effectively acknowledge that they have a degree of publishing power. And that was something which, until about six months ago, they denied strenuously. So I think the discourse is changing. We, we wait to see when the real power changes. We are formally over time, mm. but uh, we would like to include two more questions. And what if we take both of the questions and then you will have the time to, to both uh, answer these questions. How is that? Yeah. We're extending our welcome in here, but... Okay. Hello. Hi. I'm a French citizen, and uh, my question was particularly uh, for you, Mr. Haywood, a.k.a. The, the English Viking. Uh, so, it was about uh, how, as a citizen, can I verify the validity of an information? <laughs> Ideally, by triangulating that source of information against other sources of information. That's why we will always need a plural marketplace for ideas and information, I, I guess. But you, as a citizen, are going to need some help from the state and the market and the rest of civil society to make sure that there is that marketplace. So I don't, I don't expect you to do it on your own. Uh, John, do you I, want I, to I, say well, something? I do. Why yeah. are you asking the question? You're an intelligent person. Why don't you? you you've, got, you've got the World Wide Web. We've never had anything like this. It's extraordinary. Uh, it's a matter of looking through it, navigating. Uh, Every day, all of us, when we look at something that's printed and telling us something, claiming to be news or something else, in a way, one part of our brain has to verify it. If we're going to act upon it, uh, there isn't uh, uh, a sort of God-given answer. And I think the previous question was a bit, excuse me for just being a little bit harsh here, what can we do? Well, you do it. You do it. You're intelligent people. And one of the problems today is people saying, give us the word. What can we do? Please tell us the way. When in fact you have a way, you have a means that none, none of, no previous generation had. It's extraordinary. You have a, almost a freedom. We've talked about the, the impositions on freedom. But in one sense, you have a freedom that is spectacular. To be able to find out yourself, I suggest you do it. 
Now we move to the... Now we move to the last question. Could you approach the microphone, please? Hi, uh, I'm Noel from Balmer. I flew here for this particular event, and my question will go to John. Do you you have rightly said about the uh, international media, like uh, New York Times, BBC, uh, they, uh, who are regarded as credible. At the same time, it is very uh, insidious. Uh, uh, right now, we our country is also suffering, started suffering from the reputational damage that has been portrayed by the uh, that's that kind of uh, uh, credible international media. Yes, the problem is there, but at the same time, there are a cloud of inform uh, fake information. And in this regard, uh, what could uh, what could be done uh, to make uh, the credible media accountable for for what they have? Uh, cause the damage uh, to this kind of particular issue. Thank you. Could you repeat where you came from? Which country? From Burma. From Burma. Burma. Ah. Yes. Okay. Uh, did you get oh. the yes. gist of the question? I mean, yes. I sympathize, sympathize very much. It's a, it's a very difficult situation in Burma. I I. Uh, interviewed Aung San Suu Kyi on a number of occasions once when I and when I filmed secretly in Burma some years ago and um, I think what has happened in Burma is a corruption corruption was within it within the military of course the military this um, dictatorial machine that reached into every corner of life in Burma. But that machine has given credibility by those who want Burma as a chess piece. And that includes China, but it mostly includes us in the West. We've drawn Burma in. We've, in a sense, forgiven it or forgiven the generals for what they did and allowed this this, this construct of false democracy to get led by Aung San Suu Kyi to have the credibility that it's had until the whole question of the Rohingya has destroyed it. Um, and that raises many questions about heroes and heroines. It may, raises many questions about being unquestioning. I've just been in South Africa where I made a film 20 years ago called Apartheid Did Not Die, in which I interviewed Nelson Mandela. So much of the sanctified version of the Mandela years has been accepted, whereas it should have been questioned. So much in Burma about Burma should have been questioned. This facade that was erected in Burma uh, should have been pushed down to see that the people running Burma were really the same people who all, had, all, had been running it all the time. But they had a new front woman, unfortunately. Um, so I can only express my empathy to you. That officially uh, ends uh, the question and asks and answers session. I will give you each uh, two minutes <laughs> to wrap up before
we close and leave. So why don't we start with you, Jonathan? Um, I'll try to be quicker than that. I think what John just remarked on reminded me that I think one of the big, big problems we always face, both with the media and with talking about the media, is we fall very easily into a black and white, Manichaean, good versus evil narrative, where there are heroes and there are baddies. And life is never that simple. And I think when you approach these challenges with that mindset, it's very hard to solve them. Because if you think that lot over there are, are evil and wicked and self-serving, have you ever had a good conversation with anyone that began like that? No, you know, it doesn't happen. And they will start to say the same about you, and there is mutual silence and incomprehension. So I think that, you know, that these conversations have to develop some, some more nuance, some more humanity. I'm not naive. I know that there are people out there who are extremely resistant to kind of coming into society and being part of that conversation, but there are others who are not. I just think we need more space, more spaces in which to get together with the powerful players within both old and new media and try to build. I mean, maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm innocent, but I still believe it's worth trying to build some consensus about the social role that the media plays and some acceptance that that social role also brings with it some social responsibility. John? Well, I think in the West we've got to look in the mirror. We every day congratulate ourselves on being who we are. Uh, and we especially congratulate those of us who have risen to the top of the pile. Um, we look at the rest of the world, and I use the word we in partly ironic sense, in terms of its usefulness or expendability. We don't see it in the way we see ourselves because we are taught constantly, and not only in the media, right through our education system, that it's a, whole, it's a, a difference between open societies and the rest. In fact, it's a difference between power and usually imperial power, although it may not call itself that now, and, and those who are subjected to this power. History is no longer taught in so many schools and colleges in the United States, nothing. So the past, as Time magazine once called it, once, once, once said we should get used to living in an eternal present. Well, we don't, because unless we understand the past, as Orwell famously said, we won't understand the present and we won't understand uh, how to deal with the future. But mainly, we should be looking at our own societies instead of the enemies, the official enemies that are erected in front of our eyes that aren't really enemies. Um, and uh, I think as, as changing, as Jonathan has said, changing the whole conversation, the whole debate, changing the terms of the debate, we should stop wringing our hands. Well, that will have to be the final word in this Holberg debate on propaganda, facts, and fake news. It has been a most exciting debate from my point of view. I want to thank the two panelists, as well as the audience, 
for their participation. In Ludwig Holberg's spirit, we hope that, that through today's Holberg debate, to have contributed to create an atmosphere for an open and informed debate in Norway, where opposing positions may be presented without prejudice. We hold these to be essential requirements for free speech in a democratic society. Thank you, goodbye, and have a safe trip home.